Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Today is Thursday, February 27th. We've got a great show planned for you today. I'm joined once again by Industry Focus contributor Lou Whiteman. Lou, welcome back on the show. Thank you. Is there anything uh, going on in the stock market today, Lou? Uh, have you noticed anything uh, in, in your there, kind of morning news reading? Uh, you know, I haven't been on Twitter. Is anything going on? Yeah, so, so kind of bury the lead a little bit. Every major index uh, in the U.S. is down over t- 2% this morning on coronavirus fears. This continues a trend uh, since the past week. So since last Thursday when we last had the show, the S&P is down 9.99% uh, as, of, as of I'm checking uh, things right now. So obviously, lots of volatility. I think uh, CNBC would say markets are in turmoil. Um, Lou, uh, when, when you see this sort of thing happening, uh, how do you respond as an investor? Well, you know, it, it's important to say this is real and it's very serious. And it, it's tough to just stick to the financial perspective. But sticking to the financial perspective, you know, there is going to be a material impact on a broad range of businesses through the first half of this year maybe even into the second half. And uh, that's just undeniable. I think it's important as long-term investors to say, I also haven't seen anything to suggest there will be a permanent material impact. And as hard as it is, you do need to keep that in mind as you're watching these headlines. Uh, To put a plug in, uh, I would assume anyone listening to us also listens to David Gardner. But he does a real good job addressing that in this week's Rule Breaker podcast, so it's it's worth listening to. It's just to try and keep grounded for the long term as all of these headlines play out. Um, but the headlines are are very frightening. It's it's not a fun time. Yeah, it's tough. I can say myself as an investor. You know, you see your stocks falling, and you're like, oh my gosh! Especially because everything has been on their highs, uh, and you just get anchored to this high. It's just, it's just really tough. Uh, to know how to respond, especially in this situation. You know, I, I talked maybe six months ago, and we had a Halloween show, and we talked about what, what scares us the most in the market. I talked about the repo stuff, because I don't understand it. And I think when it, when it, when when what's going on with this virus is something, as a, as a regular person, it's really hard to understand exactly what's going on. Even, you know, the CDC experts are still figuring out what the truth is on the ground. So, you know, yeah. try yeah, to... I mean, it, 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 is, they, it is a work in progress for them. They're, they're learning as they go, and that's not settling for us non medical people to hear. You know, you like to think that doctors have it all under control. I think they will get it under control. But yeah, it's it's scary times. Yeah. But it's still to remember, you know, these things have happened in the past. You know, we talk about SARS, you know, we, we recovered just fine. And, you know, I, I think things will be fine over the long term. But, you know, keep your mind about you. Think think long term and, uh, you know, take care of yourself. Wash your hands. Do everything you can to, to keep yourself healthy. And that'll be good for everybody. Um mm-hmm. As we said, uh, we've got a great show planned for you today. We'll be diving into the defense industry. We got a tweet from one of our listeners, DJ Joey Hayes, asking us to dive into this. So, so that's what we're going to do. Um, you know, if anybody else uh, at home has any other show topics they want to dive uh, want us to dive into, don't hesitate to tweet at us. Shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com, and we'll be happy to uh, dive into that. On the back half of the show, Lou, we'll be diving into Lidos, which is the largest IT business in the defense industry. But first, the big news right now is the latest defense budget. Uh, before we dive into the budget itself, Lou, how does this budgeting process actually work? Yeah, it's important for investors interested in defense to kind of get a primer on the process. What we saw a couple of weeks ago, this is the Pentagon has submitted their annual budget request to Congress. This is not the final document. This is the 
the first step in the negotiations. Uh, Congress has the power of the purse. We're now going to start a period where there's going to be a lot of hearings, a lot of back and forth, where Congress will eventually, hopefully by early fall, uh, come up with a budget and allocate funds. Uh, this is an important part of the process because it gives us kind of insight into what the military planners are thinking, what they're prioritizing. Uh, it is important to look at, but at the same time, this is not a final spending document and you shouldn't necessarily trade off of any request you see on this. Uh, so it's important to keep that in mind. This is a long drawn out process. One question I have when I think about the, the budgeting process and how, how the major defense contractors play into it, you know, to what extent are, are their kind of governmental relations efforts on these on the part of these contractors to kind of influence the budget, uh, you know, to, to benefit their business? Very much so. And you especially see it on the congressional side. Uh, that this is why all these contractors have operations in 50 states. Uh, a lot of times the gamesmanship you'll see right now is the Pentagon will actually to try and get more bang for the buck, so to speak, they will lessen their request for popular programs, say the F-35, knowing full well that Congress people will be under pressure from the contractors to make sure that that goes up and hopefully it won't come at a cost to something else. So it'll just raise the overall budget. So yeah, especially on the congressional side, this is the lobbying comes in and uh, yeah, it's uh, this is how the sausage is made. Yeah, this is an important part of these businesses when their number one contractor, you know, a customer is the U.S. government. And when we go into the budget itself, Lou, what, what really stands out to you in this budget proposal? So we're going to talk about three things today. First of all, we've talked about this on the show before, but the nukes. Uh, the nuclear triad is a huge Pentagon priority, refreshing 1960s Cold War combination of bombers, submarines, and missiles. Uh, they're due for an upgrade. It is a very expensive process, $400 billion or higher over a 10-year period. Uh, we're not going to do it all in one year, but that was a big priority in this budget, $45 billion in total spending for nukes uh, spread across uh, $4 billion for a new uh, a new ballistic submarine. That's a general dynamics program. We have almost $3 billion for the B-21 bomber, which is north of Grumman. And then another $1.5 billion to replace the um, the intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missile, which is still up for bid, but is likely to be a Northrop program. Uh, the money has to come from somewhere for that. And we've seen cutbacks in shipbuilding, cutbacks in other areas. But uh, this is a big priority. This is probably the number one, the cornerstone priority for the Pentagon. And they are determined to get it funded in a big way. Yeah, Lou, obviously, you know, building nuclear weapons is always a controversial uh, prospect. Uh, you know, it, I, I did some research when you look at nuclear power in the USA and the average nuclear reactor in the USA is 38 years old. It's just so controversial to build a new, a new nuclear reactor power plant. Um, when we look at our nuclear arsenal today, we compare that to the 38-year lifespan of the average nuclear reactor. Is that the kind of age we're thinking about with our nuclear arsenal? Or how should we think about that? The current uh, missile, the Minuteman III, was first deployed in 1970. So that is a 50-year-old plus technology. And I, I would add that that was an update on the Minuteman I and II, which was a lot uh, which was a lot older, so these were not even clean sheets in 1970. Uh, there is some controversy about how much of this we need, but it is pretty much central to U.S. 
foreign policy doctrine is we need a deterrent. The reason our homeland will not be attacked is if you attack us, you can take out the missiles, but we got subs. You can take out the subs, but we have bombers. This three-pronged approach is our deterrent. It is our number one defense priority. And um, the details you can squabble on, do we need it all? Do we need it in the volumes that the Pentagon wants? That is a debate, but uh, this will get done. It is it is an overriding priority, and um, I there isn't the pushback to the concept is only in the fringes. Yeah, Lou, when you talk about deterrence, you know I need to have nukes because these other people have nukes. You think about great power conflict, you know mm-hmm. China, Russia, these type of countries, and that's part of this budget as well, right? Yeah, that is that's the second thing, big thing to hint on, hit on. Uh, for the last twenty years or so, the focus of the Pentagon has been on battling mostly insurgents or uh, small armies in the desert. Uh, that is changing. There is an increased focus on China and on Russia, and that means a rethinking of the equipment that we need. There are winners and losers there. Uh, the Army is getting very serious about modernizing, especially in the helicopter area. We are using Cold War era helicopters. That's going to be a big spending push. Uh, the other side of it is we are going through an expensive process of replacing all of our Humvees, basically because the Humvees didn't perform as well in the deserts. They didn't perform as well with uh, with uh, landmines. That you're seeing fall off as a priority. We're still replacing land vehicles, but the what seemed like a priority five years ago isn't. So there are wins, winners and losers there. Definitely the Pentagon is more focused on Russia and China than they are the Middle East for the first time in a couple of generations or a couple of decades. Yeah, Lou, when you mentioned these winners and losers here, what are the companies we should be thinking about that are the big winners here and then vice versa on the losers? For for great power, I would say um, Lockheed Martin to some extent and Textron with its helicopters. This is going to be hopeful. Textron needs a good year. And Textron needs its defense side to come through. Uh, their Bell helicopter unit or, or Bell unit has a lot of very innovative designs that are key to the Army's modernization. This isn't going to play out in calendar 2020, but you're going to see progress this year. I think Textron is going to be a finalist on one, perhaps two huge multi-billion dollar programs for the Army. And that that's going to be a, hopefully a much-needed boost for that stock, because that stock has gone nowhere for a few years. On the other side, I mentioned the Humvee replacement. That's an Oshkosh program. Oshkosh isn't a company you might think of as a defense contractor, but it's it's an important part of their business. It's not going to go away, but I doubt it's ever going to hit the long-term $30 billion or so spending total. So there is going to be a slow, drawn-out hit there for them. Okay, and then this third uh, kind of leg of the stool that you mentioned of this budget comes into the, the tech arena, modernization uh, of how we fight uh, you know, warfare. Uh, can you dive into what, what, what that entails? A big part of that, and we've talked about this before, I think, is what they call hypersonic missiles. These are missiles able to travel more than five times the speed of sound. It is perceived, and it seems with some evidence, that China is out ahead of us here and Russia is out ahead of us here. And that is very unnerving because we do not have the capabilities to defend against these sort of missiles right now. Uh, The Pentagon is earmarking $3.2 billion for hypersonics. Uh, There's also a huge request, about $3 billion for AI and autonomy, and about $10 billion for cyber. These are areas where there is perceived vulnerability or there is perceived that we are, if 
if not behind, we're not in the lead. And uh, the military is getting very serious about those areas. Yeah, I think just, you know, what, what the concerns we've had around the elections the past few years in the cyber arena has, has definitely, you know, raised red flags for folks as, you know, the concerns what's going on here. When I think about, you know, the intersection between technology and defense, what's been in the news a lot uh, the past few weeks and months is this Amazon, Microsoft Jedi contract with the defense, uh, the Department of Defense that Microsoft had won and now Amazon is challenging. I think we're seeing over the past several years increasingly big tech becoming more interwoven in these type of government contracts, defense business. How should we think about that growing over time and big tech becoming a bigger and bigger a government contractor? So there is definitely we're at a crossroads between tech and defense. And you see this in the platforms, the the use of AI and drones, uh, autonomous ships, autonomous uh, vehicles. Uh, Tech is becoming more and more important in defense, just as it's becoming more and more part of our world. I think contracts like Jedi are more of an exception than the rule. Uh, Jedi is a huge push to, to put IT systems, Pentagon IT systems in the cloud. Cloud is an area where these big tech companies have an advantage and they have the infrastructure, so it made sense for them to get involved. I don't think you're but but you know, every time we've seen commercial businesses get into defense they've stumbled a lot more than they thought they would and i think you're already seeing this on the employee level with some of the pushback uh we've seen at google and microsoft and amazon uh we're also seeing kind of a clumsiness in how these companies handle the procurement process which i think will hold them back I, I don't see a lot of Jedi contract. I, I think defense contractors will continue to soak up a lot of the revenue. Even in Jedi, a company called SAIC just announced a $1.2 billion deal basically because they want more manpower because they're going to be on the ground implementing Jedi. I, I think these companies are still going to soak up the lion's share of the revenue. But yes, you are seeing this intersection and there's going to be more interplay because the Pentagon is very interested in in tech's capabilities uh, as they should be. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying, Lou, you know, like we said off the top, how important governmental relations is in this industry, you know, understanding your, your customer in the U.S. government in and out and being able to provide to them exactly what they want to their specifications, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, when you look at this trend, is there a, a company in defense that you would be most excited in uh, to follow or invest in to, to play into that trend? <laughs> no, I, I think just to, uh, to emphasize that point, I think that is maybe the most under, misunderstood part about the defense sector, that it is a dealing with the government is a core competency. And it's not something easily done. I mean, it works the other way. These contractors, most of them have failed miserably when they've gone out into the commercial sector. It's a different animal. And it's very much underappreciated how how important it is to know how to deal with the government. Among big contractors, for a lot of reasons, I like Lockheed Martin a lot. They're involved in a lot of the the, um, the tech emphasis areas, and they just have an amazing portfolio. Uh, a company that we're going to get into in a second, but uh, Lidos, I think, is is very is it a real pivotal moment, or there are real crossroads of what's going on here. But uh, we'll talk about them in a second. But there's a lot to like here, even though even though we might be hitting a peak budget. Yeah, before we get into Lidos, I want to make sure to remind listeners that if you're just starting out or you know someone who's looking to get started investing, we have a free investing starter kit. It covers everything from saving money to 401ks to buying your first stock, and it includes five stocks selected by our investing team. 
for free. Just go to fool.com slash starter kit. Check it out. That's once again, fool.com slash starter kit. All right, Lou, you mentioned Lidos is an exciting company to kind of play into this techification of the defense industry, if you will. Uh, what should we know about this business? What does it do? Yeah, let's talk about government services for a second. I mean, most people, when they think defense, they think uh, big hardware items, bombers, uh, tanks. There is a large and growing business uh, running IT networks, doing reset, research, as the name implies, doing services for the government. Uh, this is a growing business because you know we're in an age of low taxes, we're in an age of deficits. The government increasingly, Pentagon and civil agencies, need to do more with less. And their answer is, is outsourcing, for lack of a better word. Uh, it's a trend that is only going to continue. Uh, Lidos is a big part of that. It, the company was formed out of a spinoff in 2012. It's gone from $6 billion in revenue to $10 billion in less than a decade, uh, a lot of that via M&A. It's a business that is both intriguing for all of the trends I've I just mentioned the the outsourcing. It's it's a business that's going to grow, but it's also by the nature of it, it is a it, it at the end of the day, a lot of times they're fighting on cost, which leads to a fight to the bottom and means margin pressure. So it's it, it's a business that's both exciting, growing, and challenging for these companies, and and they're trying to figure out how to get it right. Right, and so when I think about margin pressure, and you think about you know these contracts that defense contractors bid for, you know the lowest price wins. So I think one important aspect that I, I think about is what are the barriers to entry uh, into this into this segment of the market. So when Lidos gets a contract, uh, how easy or, or or not easy is it for for another competitor to come in and then and then you know displace them from that position with the government? How hard is the changeover that sort of thing? The contracts are typically multi-year, and they typically have extensions. Uh, you can't break that during the contract. But when they come up for recompetes, th those tend to be wars. Uh, Lido's just won a huge $7.7 .7 billion IT contract with the Navy that they stole away from one of their competitors. Uh, it does happen. There is an incumbent advantage uh, simply because a lot of these contracts, you're so embedded with the customer there is a huge switch cost, but uh, you do see it. And increasingly, these companies, the the bigger companies, they have scale advantage and they are going in and offering a lower cost and they are trying to win that business. Uh, there is more business coming, but, but the easiest way to grow is to steal something from someone else. And so, yeah, they are very actively trying to do that. Right. I mean, you mentioned this, this pressure on margin. Scale is important. Uh, are there any new business lines they might be pursuing to, to kind of grow the pie of what their the business uh, you know their addressable market that sort of thing? Well, this is where uh, this is where Lidos gets really interesting. Uh, they they have been a government services contract for most of their contractor for most of their history. They have done a good job expanding into areas like intelligence, using their scale advantage, using the number of employees they have with these clearances. These clearances can take a long time to get, a year, year plus to get a new employee with clearance. That is a huge barrier of entry to a, a commercial firm trying to come in and run an IT network. Uh, they've also done a good job capitalizing on the techification of hardware and finding areas to compete. Uh, they uh, Last year, a Lidos, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, a ship 
traveled from San Diego to Hawaii and back uncrewed. That wasn't their ship. They didn't build the ship, but they were responsible for the electronics and the brains in it. That is a new area where 20 years ago you couldn't see a mostly tech company compete where they can compete. Uh, they're very exciting right now because since Christmas they have done $2 billion deals to kind of build up their research and hardware. Uh, in late December, they bought a privately held company called Dynetics that is a research shop based in Alabama. They have very close ties to NASA. They are very much involved in the uh, intelligence community, and they have a contract. They're the prime contractor on something called Gremlins, which actually imagines an airborne, almost think of it as an aircraft carrier, launching drones and recovering drones. Uh, this is a very futuristic company involved in hardware to some extent, but it's a brand new business for them. They also bought a, uh, a airport scanner business from L3 Harris, which again is an area where electronics and equipment sort of overlap. So they are really forward thinking. They are really looking at how they can build this business and kind of avoid the, the economies of scale uh, race to the bottom trap. And, uh, you know, it's still early, but it, it's, it's, it's very exciting what they're doing. Yeah. You mentioned Dynetics, you know, Alabama, I, I'll tell you just, you know, from talking to folks back home, the, the defense industry in, in Huntsville is just absolutely exploding. Uh, that's a huge, huge growth area. Uh, one, one thing that you, you mentioned, uh, this ship where they kind of run the brain of the ship and, and then another, another contractor maybe, maybe builds the ship itself makes me think about, uh, you know, in self-driving, we heard earlier these, these arguments that, uh, Waymo and these other companies are going to run all the the brains of the cars, and then we're going to turn the OEMs into the into the kind of the Foxconn of cars. Now, maybe that dynamic hasn't played out quite quite the way we expected uh, in self driving cars. But when you when you look at what's going on in the defense industry with Lidos, is that a comparison that makes sense? You know, turning the other defense contractors in this instance into kind of a Foxconn, and then they're running the brain of the the technology behind the scenes. There's probably going to be something of a hybrid approach, and we're already seeing that. Uh, Huntington Ingalls, which is one of the two largest shipbuilders and the, and the company most reliant on shipbuilding, they have partnered with Boeing on an autonomous sub where they are actually building the sub. Uh, so you, you are going to see some of that, but, but truth is there's a lot of low-margin shipyards out there where you can build a boat. Uh, the uh, Lidos autonomous ship, for example, was built without Huntington or General Dynamics, which is the other big shipbuilder. Uh, that at least suggests the opportunity for some of the Apple Foxconn type relationships. Uh, and that is a real threat to shipbuilders. Uh, one I think I should add that they are aware of uh, Huntington Ingalls has been buying up autonomous, trying to get stronger and autonomous. I, I don't think it sinks to shipbuilders, pardon the pun, but it is a new dynamic where it was a pretty private club 10 years ago. Uh, it's not such a private club anymore. As the Navy evolves, there are going to be new companies involved, and it it's something that definitely investors into shipbuilders should be mindful of. Yeah, I'll say my, my stepdad actually works running at Ingles, so you know, I'm rooting for him, but uh, you know, this is uh, you know, a, a real concern. Um, but when you look at Lidos and, you know, you look at the defense contracting industry, a lot of people gravitate towards Lockheed, Martin, Northrop, General Dynamics, these, these big contractors. What does a company like Lidos give to investors that, that differentiates them from what you might get from those, those big giants? 
Mm-hmm. I should say I'm still very excited about some of the defense primes. I mentioned Lockheed before. Uh, General Dynamics, for kind of commercial reasons, I think that stock still looks attractive. Uh, with Lidos, though, it's, as I've said, there's sort of, it feels like they're at a tipping point. Uh, they, along with maybe a company called L3 Harris, I think have the real potential over the next couple of years to turn into something much bigger, much more important to the defense landscape. And, you know, it, it appears we're an era, we're reaching the kind of peak budget for this cycle. It's going to be harder for the defense primes to show growth with new awards. Uh, a company called Lidos, they, they've taken a lot of debt short term. So you know, the stock has run up pretty well. So, you know, it, it, it's in the next few quarters, maybe there's some choppiness, but they're they're onto something here, and there is a real potential for them to show out outsized returns. I think as they grow into this, and it's you just don't see those sort of opportunities in the defense business elsewhere right now at this point in the cycle. Right, I think I think the way you describe how how technology is continually being integrated. Uh, you know, with defense, how much more important cyber is becoming as part of our, our defense strategy. This is a wave that is just growing. I, you know, I just can't see that stopping any time over the next several decades, whether Lidos or, or somebody else is going to be the winner. I just this is a huge trend that has just got to continue. Right. I, I agree. I agree. And I, and I think everybody this isn't a secret to anyone in the industry. And you see a lot of the companies bulking up in various parts of technology. Uh, there are some great R&D shops in this industry. Uh, everybody will ride this wave, but you know this is a group of stocks that tend to trade in a group. Uh, they tend to trade based on the budget, based on uh, macro factors. It's tricky to find outperformance. It, and uh, I think with these companies that are sort of just coming into their own, that's where you're going to see outperformance as they sort of grow into the upper echelon. That, that the primes are already in. All right, folks, that's an exciting one to add to your watch list and an exciting industry to, industry to just watch in general as the techification of defense uh, continues to play out. As that happens, Lou, I'm sure we'll have you on again soon to discuss it and uh, dive into it. So hope to have you on again soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks for your time. As always, people on the program may own stocks discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Dan Boyd for his work behind the glass. For Lou Whiteman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool On.